Hey, it's Luke. Today on the pod, the second part of our conversation with Daniel Walters. Last week, we spent a lot of time breaking down the chronology of how the anti-pride event was conceived and initially promoted locally, but how local, quote unquote, in the case of North Idaho, now includes an increasing number of far-right celebrities who live here, people with followings in the tens and even hundreds of thousands. Those people use the tactics of influencer culture to court bigger far-right influencers like libs of TikTok, and that strategy wasn't only a success on those terms, it led to local TV pickups in markets where TV stations are owned by the conservative Sinclair Broadcasting Group, and just made a way bigger splash than your average rally in North Idaho has to this point. All of that led to a situation where, as Daniel put it memorably last week, everything converging, like the Not Another Teen movie finale about everything's going to happen at the prom, kind of this idea of, <laughs> right. you know, this is all going to go down at Pride in the Park. This is going to be this showdown. So many different things, including a brief cameo appearance by the Satanic Temple of Idaho, came to a head to put just an outsized lens and focus on this Pride event in North Idaho. So that was mostly background. This week, we're going to discuss how, just as the pot seemed likely to boil over, all sides took a step back, tweaking their plans to actually de-escalate, and how that might have been the difference between what actually happened and something deadlier. Certain people on the eve of the event were calling for Charlottesville too. That is not what happened, thank God. We also talk about what feels like big ideological differences among these people and groups who momentarily dropped those differences to unite against the Pride celebration and the LGBTQ community, you know, just existing in a place like Coeur d'Alene. Then lastly, we discuss the way these things get covered by the media. Daniel says he feels like the far right gets overcovered. I don't think I agree with the over part, but it is true that lots of outlets who wouldn't normally touch the news of the Inland Northwest or even the larger interior West are very interested in figures like Matt Shea, like the Bundys, like the readout movement, etc. That's true of legacy media like the New York Times, and even the Seattle Times, who rarely head east of the Cascades unless it's to report about these groups. That's true of old school Web 1.0 liberal blogs like Talking Points Memo. And it's true of more overtly activist organizations like Unicorn Riot that might not even self-identify as journalists, but who cover far-right activities as a political act and who infiltrate far-right groups and message boards to keep tabs and shine light on their plans. You'll hear Daniel talk about how his personal journalistic ethics don't allow him to make up a fake name or pass himself off as a fascist to dig into the firmament of these groups, but how valuable that work can be for journalists. Both of us used it in our reporting as we were running down the Buster Brothers and their connections to Patriot Front and Matt Shea, looking for any one of those other 31 people who were arrested to see if any of them had connections to Spokane as well. The hard part there, of course, is verifying the information that comes out when sources like that are generally anonymous as a matter of personal safety, so they aren't likely to go on the record or show their work, which makes it harder to verify the information they offer, which makes it hard to sort of reach journalistic standards of verification, the sort of certainty we like to have before we actually publish something. It's a shorter episode this week, but it gives you a lot to think about. And hey, it'll let you get your dose of bad news in a more concentrated form with enough time to maybe start your weekend a little early. It's our gift to you. And again, it's a topic that is so, so important and a landscape that's changing so quickly, especially in North Idaho, that it never feels like a good time to feel bad, but it never feels like a bad time to talk about this stuff. So yeah, North Idaho is both a place and an idea. Part two of Daniel Walters talking about the far right in the panhandle coming up. 
I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. We're all going to cut. This is all going to go down at Pride in the Park. This is going to be this showdown. What's sort of amazing, though, is that, and I don't want to give too much credit to uh, white supremacists, you know, you don't got to hand it to them, right? But like, there's actually evidence of everyone kind of taking a step back. You have the Panel Patriots says, we're going to do National Day of Prayer in Santa Gun Lane. You have Dave Riley and folks like, we're going to do this, this radical, you know, kind of rosary march at like a different park instead of this confrontation. You have, you know, the left-wing people saying we're not going to show up in black block, and you have pride saying activists do not confront these other people. Yeah. And then simultaneously, you have like even Patriot Front. There's a lot of like un- there are a lot of internal communications. These other things are saying we're like not about violence. So it seemed like that everyone was to a certain extent they didn't want to be blamed for the violence, right? As much as there's there's efforts to really fan the flames, which everyone is fanning the flames. But there's also people kind of thinking almost at all levels, this could get really out of hand. And so like that's, that is important because I mean, there wasn't any violence, as, as, at least in terms of arrested violence that I could tell that week, um, not from anyone. And whether it's because the police are arresting the people or any of these sorts of things, you know, there's one person who seemed to be like a, a trans person who was affiliated with kind of the, the far left in Portland. But even that person was, there was sort of this yelling confrontation and then they like, like might have like scratched a car yeah scratched a car but it, there wasn't any actual fights so basically the cops and the organizers of pride and the anti-fascists and the far-right christians are all saying we won this event was a success for us we're kind of cheering to some degree because because there wasn't violence and because they feel like they're able to you know get some of get the, the word out yeah. so even though so you know it's like i don't know about patriot i don't know if they thought they won. Did, do you have a sense mm-hmm far-right Coachella. I'm sure each one of these groups. Yeah, which is a great, I wish I came up with that, with that name, which is the perfect, which is the perfect word for it. So, well, yeah. and, the, and the whole point of Coachella is in addition to like, whether you care about the music or not is to be seen. So it's like, yeah. this is like going to be a propaganda win for all of these groups yeah. in various ways. I would have probably said Comic-Con because I'm like, like, I don't know music. I know like, I'm more of a nerd, but yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Then you have this arrest kind of taking all the air out of the room. Are people still seeing it as a success? Cause it feels like instantly then the eye of the world mm-hmm. turns yeah. to the back of a U-Haul truck and that's all anybody talks and see, about. There is, there is this video of, this is the video that Dave Riley sent me when I asked about, you know, whether he was David Crockett. Yeah. There's this moment where he's I wanted in, to talk about that in a second. So yeah, yeah keep, it's tell a really me about fascinating that a video where he's upset. He's like, we were going to win. This is going to be this day of prayer that we're going to show. We're going to ex- expose these you know crazy people. And then here comes Patriot Front. You know, a lot of times there's always this idea that like, oh, the Biden administration is like involved with these, you know, they're pushing them to do certain things. This is, you know, Asian provocateurs, whatever, you know, these are like Patriot Front is coming. So like, this is going to be the headline now. So I did want to talk about yeah. that. The way he phrases this was so fascinating to me. So I, I actually quoted it. And then I just wanted to ask you about yeah. that. Given everything we've just talked about, all these people, including random Swedes and Austrians trying to move yeah. to North Idaho, some of them successfully, some of them not. Riley says of Patriot Front, we do not need outsiders coming to North Idaho to defend what isn't theirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy who maybe yeah. moved in 2020 to North Idaho, yeah. uh, maybe a little earlier. 
it was really, really funny to me. But then the the question that is kind of deadly serious, I feel, for yeah. a lot of people in Idaho is given the rapid growth in North Idaho, these contentious ideological splits, hurtling rightward of the entire state, and, and with Kootenai County as sort of the catalyst for a lot of this, it seems like depending on who you talk to, Riley would be the definition of an outsider or also the definition of a guy who's trying to, and clearly as somebody who's trying to paint himself as an insider, ideologically, yeah. he is probably is an insider or trying to become one. Yeah. He says that every, this, this is an incredibly Christian community. So like, this is our club. And, mean, and meanwhile, I have friends both in Coeur d'Alene and Sandpoint, Bonner County, whose families have been in Idaho for generations who say they are the ones who now feel like outsiders. Mm -hmm. So not just from folks like Riley, but political leaders like Regan, the mainline politics of Kootenai County are making Kootenai County residents feel like outsiders and not exclusively Democrats, by the way. And even Paulette Jordan a couple months ago, I heard her give a short talk about her run for governor, the death th threats she received, and not merely for being a Democrat, but for being an indigenous woman. She's an enrolled member of the Coeur d'Alene yeah. tribe who feels like an outsider in her community. And I talked to Cole LaFaver, who is as now identifies as, I believe, non-binary, but they were, uh, you know, back when we were reporting the first lesbian to be in Idaho State Legislature. And they were saying, basically, I hear from conservative families here that are worried they feel like they have to leave because they have kids who are trans or kids who are gay. And we, you know, they don't really feel safe or accepted now. You know, they're, they're basically saying the kids don't decide to be gay. Conservatives have gay kids too, right? So there's going to be this real tension and how are they going to be accepted? Or, and even if they are accepted by most everyone, is there going to be this, this constant threat? You know, uh. you can feel accepted by everyone, but if, if you come open your Twitter feed every, every day and there's all these messages saying, I hate you from all these randos, you're still going to feel pretty awful, even if that's, you know, an insignificant proportion of oh, people actually around, yeah. right? I think a journalist is going to understand that when you get like one piece of hate mail, it, yeah. it erases a hundred positive comments. Right, absolutely. So it feels very much like Idaho is both, or North Idaho specifically, is both a place and an idea. And there, it feels like we're in a situation where those two things, the concept and the yeah. place, are fighting for primacy. Yeah, sometimes fighting and sometimes um, powering each other. Sometimes kind of a yeah, positive feedback right. loop, right? Yeah. And, and so like... Uh -huh it feels like this interesting frontier moment where no matter what you've done in Pennsylvania, like Riley or all the, you know, the, you know, people moving up from California or wherever you can go to North Idaho, which is a place and an idea and remake yourself as a patriot and an insider. And I find that just fascinating. Yeah. In terms of the North Idaho idea, you've had the Northwest imperative, the Aryan nation idea that this is where all this is going to be this white homeland, right? So that was like, that's really old school. That's like 80s and 90s, you know, 80s and 90s. This is like an old school. And then you had in the, the 2010 kind of Tea Party era, you had a big, the readout, which is sort of that version, but for like more of preppers and preppers, militia types. When the, you know, everything hits the fan, when everything collapses, this is going to be our bulwark. This is where we're going to be. We're going to rebuild. This is going to be where we're going to protect ourselves from all these liberal agendas. And then you have, most recently, you have the alt-right, you know, you have these groypers and these people like come all kind of locating here. And I watched this really fascinating streaming video piece by Vince James Fox, the person who kicked off all this hysteria in the first place. And he like pulls up this Google Maps of this trip from California to around like through Missoula, but like to Coeur d'Alene and, and kind of that area, talking about why he's moving to Idaho and how wonderful Idaho is. It's beautiful, these, these mountains, it's not overcrowded. 
Uh, and there's so many white people here, which means that things are going to be safer because he believes that color of your skin determines that, you know, how criminal you are. Yeah. Even the gardeners here are white. A lot of the people you know, they're already here. We hang out, hung out the other day. I'm not going to say who they are. You know, there is with these members who have this incredibly large audience, this is seen as this beachhead to kind of make a stand again for some of these really, really toxic ideas. So like, I'm concerned about tactics. I'm concerned about people being violent. I'm concerned about Antifa being violent. I'm concerned about, you know, the possible Patriot Front being violent or white supremacy violence, because we've seen that in the region. But it's also like this idea, ideology itself is genuinely dangerous. They're selling rat poison as in a food truck in the free marketplace of ideas, right? And so that's not something I'm saying to shut them down or anything. I'm saying like, we're gonna have to rely on some of these very, very conservative Idahoans to take a stand against, like guys like Grant Regan, someone to take a stand against this kind of stuff. And so that's the, that's the challenge. You can't rely on just the left-wing activists or the, you know, uh, up in. Well, there's such a vanishing you know, minority, yeah. yeah. All the reporting that had been done on kind of the ties that Janice McGinn had to the far right, and she won by 15 points in Kootenai County. You know, it's very, very much the far right's world right now. And the alt-right is trying to make it their world as well. One final question. I want to talk about some journalism stuff. This is definitely going to be a two-parter. We've mentioned it a couple times. It comes up as a theme, something that's mentioned in the piece a number of times, and we've, we've touched on it a number of times here. And I guess it's interesting. I hear the Republican Party saying it wants to be a big tent, right? That's the, yeah. the Regan thing. It's unclear how many of these individual actors want to be in coalition big enough to really take power in a meaningful way. But faith is a huge piece of this for a lot of different people in a lot of different ways and in many ways that are mutually exclusive. Shea's a fundamentalist Protestant. He's buddies with this pastor in Poland who is vehemently, vehemently anti-Catholic in, yeah. a, in a country that's like 98% Catholic. So, so him, and, him and Dave Riley and Nick Fuentes would not get along. This right? is what I'm yeah. saying. So like Riley is really anti-Ukraine. Shea is obviously very pro-Ukraine and Absolutely. anti-Russia. Which is really uh, interesting, yeah. And, and then yeah. the way Riley car- specifically, specifically chose to slander the Patriot Front was by calling them neo-Nazi pagans. Yeah. Like, and you yeah. just got done saying the motorcycle guy doesn't yeah. really love God either. And he came out really, really strong against White Lives Matter, which apparently was, I at least I've heard, like really pissed off White Lives Matter, so, which is good. It is good that these people like Matt Shea and even Dave Riley, it's good these people are like taking a stand against the worst. They're, they're drawing a line somewhere, right? That's It's so important they're drawing a line. It, it might be really, really far away from where you and I would draw the line, but it's good that they are pushing back there. And some of it has to do with, you know, there's there's faith, there's religion, but it's also like you can have this coalition of the willing against what seems like this really sinister enemy. All right. Want to talk journalism for a yeah. second? Yeah, for sure. How do you feel about the interplay of national and local coverage and events like this? This is probably like the single biggest topic yeah. at the meta journalism level for local journalists. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about this? So I was... Um, relaxing and like playing video games on Saturday what I probably should have been writing, you know, trying to get start my work on my inlander story for the week. Then I get a call, so I pick it up and it's like, hey, this is Mark from the New York Times. I had like connected through Mike Baker, the New York Times to connect to be part of like just their, the pool of potential freelancers. So they, which is, and I give them credit for, they didn't really have anyone that like their guys in the area. They wanted some on the ground coverage of the press conference. So they said, hey, can you drive over? I'm like, I think I can. This is all the way. It's good. Like, I don't really want to. I'm like doing my, but like, okay. It's so the I'm New York like, Times. Yeah, so yeah. I, yeah, you don't want to like turn down an opportunity, right? So I drove over to Coeur d'Alene. I ended up getting there a little bit late, but I ended up, you know, turning around this story and they they were great to work with. <laughs> Trying to turn around a breaking news story is not my like spiritual gift, as they say. But I think it was a really good, and it really helped because I had been immersed in all this stuff 
Yeah. Um, immediately. You, you so can I, give context I, that yeah. a national reporter couldn't have. And so I think it's really important. The challenge is that like the national media, there's in a lot of ways, the New York Times and the Washington Post and some of these other national outlets are really thriving to some degree. They've invested a lot in investigative coverage and these kind of things. But the local media in so many cities is just falling apart. Montana is just a disaster zone there. And then simultaneously, you still have the Coeur d'Alene Press and the Daily Bee in North Idaho and the Spokesman Review. But in, in some ways, in lieu of the fact that these, these, these papers have not been able to have the influence and kind of reach just even in terms of communicating what happened at this local meeting, you see these partisan people actually take up the slack. And you'll have some of these really far-right papers like the Kootenai County Observer, like, I'm live blogging this meeting, like a city council meeting yeah, or like a yep. county commissioner meeting, they're taking the they're taking the role that journalists had and they're doing it for activism and ideology as opposed to for, for pay and career. So like, there's always gonna be that thirst to know what's going on in community. The question is, is who's gonna be delivering it to you? I even think about the center square, which has recently yeah. gotten very, very active in Spokane. Yeah, which is useful. I've-, I've uh, I, I actually- yeah. I've, Sometimes they scoop stuff, you know, it's like I, I'm working on some story like, oh, the Senate Square is already well, And it. when Bingle was doing all of his mask protests, he gave an interview to the Center Square before he gave an interview to any, everybody else. And so I was able to like figure out what he was going to yeah. say about the mask stuff by reading this article yeah. from a conservative nonprofit organization that has like this sort of national local journalism strategy. This is a way that journalism is going to be saved in quotation marks or, you know, <laughs> yeah. you're going to have a lot of these ideological organizations. And you've already sort of seen it to some degree with, say, like the Albertsons Foundation funds Idaho Education News. So people that have these these interests or these ideals in, in some way, kind of almost calling back to the, you know, days of kind of the founding of the country almost. You have all these people with sort of these ideological backgrounds that like you still want to know what's going on and they're going to be motivated by we want to change the world. Um, so they're going to be producing a lot of like activist journalists in, of one of the right wing or the left wing, which can be helpful. At least they're at least it's there. But the challenge more and more is you're not going to have you don't have people you can trust anymore. Who's going to be the person who's going to be solid? Who's going to tell you if if there's somebody rioting? Is it Patriot Front or is it Antifa or is it just like hooligans? And this is what I think this, the press really needs to do is like ideally there needs to be a moment where people are able to trust that we're going to like get to the end of a story, even if it looks really bad for the people we may like. And so that's harder to do, but I think that's gonna be really necessary. Because otherwise, I mean, this is what I'm seeing more and more is that people are just, this is what happened in Russia under Putin. It's not like people are being fooled by propaganda. It's like there's so much just junk that's out there and misinformation is just so much whatever. People just give up. People throw their hands up. You just decide the fan fiction that you agree with, right? Hmm. That's really kind of disturbing to me. I'm really worried. There's so much focus on not what the national media is doing wrong. And I have plenty of frustrations or complaints with various national media sources, except the New York Times who, you know, so um, <laughs> who pays me yeah, yeah, occasionally, occasionally. <laughs> but yeah, so there's like a plenty of like complaints I'll have with that and frustrations. But like, it's just like everyone's focusing on Patriot Front when you have these major alt-right people in. I was like, it's like everyone is focused on Washington Post's internal um, woke or retweet drama. The fact is, is that right now there's like, there's nobody covering some of these places. I talked to a conservative guy with podcaster who did a podcast with who moved to Tennessee and he's like, 
I'm trying to vote for these people. I don't even know what they stand for. So like, I don't have like just that basic thing in terms of who people, who people stand who for. These, who these people yeah. are and what do they stand for? Yeah. And obviously the, the critiques of parachuting in are, are yeah. legitimate, but it strikes me, you mentioned them earlier, but like Unicorn Riot and these sort of alternative activists, but information gathering adjacent. Yeah. And certainly, and then places like Huffington Post do, we've had conversations about some of the most, the deepest reporting about what's happening at Christchurch in Moscow has happened from reporters based in the Midwest reporting for, you know, HuffPo. Yeah. And so it does strike me that when, when I was like trying to burn through, like I already knew about the busters, but I was like trying to do a speed run through who are the rest of these guys yeah. and can I maybe make a quick connection to any of them in Spokane? They already knew a lot of these yeah. people and were able to quickly get it out. Yeah. And so people who are focused on specific topics can can really, really help as well. I mean, like the far right is to some degree overcovered in the terms of its at the breadth, because you not only have a bunch of people who are really fascinated at this at all levels of these different national press organizations, but you also have all of these activists who are doing things that journalists wouldn't do. You know, with my journalistic ethics, I typically wouldn't lie about who I am to, to sort of infiltrate this Nazi group and go undercover. Like, that's not the kind of journalist I am, right? But these activists will. And they have brought back some really, really fascinating information. And it's always one of those things you have to figure out, okay, is this, is this stuff good? Is this stuff real? But it is, uh, it's really sort of fascinating. But so like the question is, this is overcovered. Why are we covering it? I think it's because ironically, the inland Northwest, far right in the inland Northwest, has not received. Dude, this is my next question. As I was going through this, I kind of expected, because Shea does have a presence, people are yeah. do talk about him nationally. It's, yeah. It is a favorite stalking horse of Talking Points Memo and stuff like that. Yeah. The busters were not on anybody's radar. Maybe they were just so new or something. We don't really know much about yeah. the radicalization that those two kids went through, but we clearly still need locals running this stuff down because as, as good as some of those activist places can be and, and those national outlets who really want to focus on the right, it does feel like there's a gap in the inland Northwest. Despite our history, we are at once almost totemic in the way that people yeah. talk about the Aryan nation and neo-Nazis mm -hmm. yeah. and stuff. And there's this hole. One of my uh, shibboliths, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but... Close uh, enough, I think. Yeah, which is the whole point, right? One of the things, ways that I could tell if a person didn't actually know about what was happening in North Idaho for a long time was if I asked them about extremism, they're like, well, talk you know, the Aryan the nations. Because yeah. I'm like, exactly. yeah, you don't know like anything that's like the happened. last 20 years. Yeah, you don't understand what's actually going on. It has been the focus of you know, some local, local people. One of the first big national stories of Matt Shea was, was our former colleague, Leah. Leah. Yeah. You know, everyone's like, wow, this is really crazy. Now we're in this national kind of world, but until really recently, there really haven't been a bunch of reporters parachuting into Spokane or even like the Seattle Times. And I had interviewed for an investigative reporter position, the Seattle Times. I asked them like, I was just, you know, about what kind of beat. And I'm saying like extremism, like you guys dominated on so many stories. The extremism beat with left or right, like you you guys aren't really on it. Like I was reporting with this thing over in Olympia, some of this stuff, like it's just not like the Seattle Times, that wasn't their bailiwick and their focus. They were winning Pulitzer Prizes for like their coverage of Boeing. And they're just like literally just doing some of the best reportage in the region. But like that wasn't their priority. And so I think alt weeklies would do a lot of this stuff. Alt weeklies are a lot of them are gone. I think part of the thing with the Seattle Times, too, is that it used to think of itself, I think, as a regional paper. Like, it was like the paper of record for the Northwest. And I think they've retrenched to the point that they basically do the I-5 corridor and probably mostly north of Portland. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to get them to get across, go across the Cascades. But get, give, like, Jim Bruner, one of their political reports credit, he did fly over to Boise to do the McGeehan story 
And so they have been doing some of that stuff. Um, recently, for recently. sure. Yeah, so I think there is a recognition. There has, and they actually broke, I was working on it. I think you knew about it. I know Eli knew about it. Like we were all kind of working on yeah, the Shea, Shea Orphan's complicated orphan story. And then like the Seattle Times scooped us all and beat us all to it. Um, so by like three hours. God. Okay. By for like, me. By like a week and a half, but for me. So like, cause it was like, <laughs> it had just been like bumped to like the next week. Yeah. It's no, like, you told me before. that. Yeah. That was, that was the saddest DM I think I've yeah. gotten from anybody was yeah. when Daniel was like, my Shay and Poland story got bumped a week right before it broke. <laughs> yeah. So it's been like, is this a, you know, you know, you know, it's one of those things where it's just, and I'm like, you know, kind of like, this is a really big deal guys. I think you called it a knife in the gut, yeah. which is so, uh, so, evocative. But, but I want to, I want to give credit to my boss. They recognize that this is frustrating. They also recognize this is a big deal. So they had me do like a blog, a big, really investigative blog on it. So yeah, so it's, it's, it's great. And I'll have some of those frustrations, but it's always one of those getting scoop sucks, but, but, but also it's getting scoop sucks, but it's also getting scoop is a good thing because it means that there are thriving, like go get them investigative yeah, reporters. No, totally, totally. I mean, community. the fact that there were four people from the region, three of whom were in Spokane and one of whom was lives in Spokane, but happened to be in Poland at the time. Yeah. Like, that's doing incredible awesome. That almost felt like yeah. what I imagine it would have been like yeah, to be covering Ruby Ridge in yeah. the early 90s. Like yeah. that, I mean, not even close because there was like 30 people covering that. But so that to me was yeah, was really was cool. Just, but it's also like, as you might say, it's you don't want everyone running after the same soccer ball. So it's one of my questions too, is like, how can I, as a person who tries to cover this, ex, you know, extremism, how can I, A, not be getting like a bubble where I'm just, you know, focusing on Matt Shea I think we got to continue to look at what's being undercovered, um, what's not being covered. Um, and there's, there's moments like this where everyone's going to be covering it. But it's also like one of the things I was doing, and I, I actually told multiple people this nationally, I'm like, I don't understand why Janice McGeehan is being ignored. It's this really fascinating dynamic. And, and finally, they just got a, a ton of national coverage at the end. But this is this crazy moment where there's this like shows how... Well, and our colleague, Zach Hagedon of it, the Sandpoint yeah. Reader, who I used to do some editing work at the Inlander, and he's been a yeah. longtime friend of mine, he told me this time last year that the the bellwether for Idaho politics was the uh, the lieutenant governor's race, actually. Yeah. And he was absolutely right about that. Yeah. And he knew that a year before a lot of people were paying yeah, attention to it. and it was a big, it was a really big deal. Her journey, she's the Forrest Gump in the sense of, yeah, yeah. of the journey, in the sense of like, just like her she's ideological journey. Yeah, right. Well, she was like, okay, I'm a conservative kind of libertarian folk 10 years ago. And then she was hooked up with the Bundy Ranch people that were kind of malicious. And now she's sucked into the Groyper far right as kind of seeing if this is this is the new moment this is the new fad this is kind of the the way the direction is going and a little bit more intentional than forrest gump but yeah it's a good metaphor <laughs> well, she was mcgeehan was defeated in idaho a big defeat for this idea for this idea you know idaho standing up behind relative normie concert like mainstream for idaho conservatism yep. pushing back in a dramatic way in almost you know a, like a pretty titanic way against janice mcgeehan and priscilla giddings who's what her running mate but not in North Idaho. In Kootenai County, McGeehan went by 15, you know. When we, I was preparing for this, an yeah. Idaho Tribune, like the related articles on some of the Idaho Tribune stories I was looking at for this, one of which was Antifa is actively stumping for Brad Little in Idaho. Yeah, Don't so be fooled. I, I laughed at that. Yeah, one of the challenges, because I have so many beats and I'm covering City Hall and then suddenly I'm on housing and then some, you know, you're taking a million beats, you're not always on Idaho. So there's, point, there's moments where like, you know, you're the, you're the guy coming back to town and kind of seeing what's, what's changed while you're, you know, you were overseas, you know, what's, what's the, what's happened to Pottersville. And I was seeing this, I'm like, this is almost satirical. One of my favorite headlines was like thrice vaccinated Californian reporter 
fails to stump Freedom Foundation. So it was like it was like all of these sort of like oh, this will get them. Just yeah. the yeah, all yeah, the showing like these things that are like all signals. the virtue signaling. Yeah. yeah, just a couple more things that I'm yeah. I'm curious about. So apart from the parachuting in thing, I do feel like that actually has caused a bit of reflection on national outlets. Mm-hmm. Vice News ran a story about the Buster Brothers that gave Range a credit, which I was shocked by. The New York Times called you, yeah, you know, and which maybe is, which and, is the bat, which is like one of the best ways to do it. I think is like actually have some of the people that are there like be involved with the reporting, which is pretty great. Right. Like, otherwise, they all, all, always, you know, I'll talk to somebody and try to help them out. But yeah. And so like, on the one hand, that feels like it's sort of changing for the better. One of the things, not wanting everybody to chase the same soccer ball. Yeah. Attribution locally still bugs the shit out of me. We link to your story and our story. You were generous with linking and tagging me in your Twitter posts and us in yeah. your Twitter posts. Like, and, and we've had these conversations. We just had a conversation with Rebecca White from the from NPR just talking about if newsrooms are all a tenth of their size, but there's still 10 of them, can we sort of, in a weird way, fashion one normal newsroom using the tools of co- cooperation and collegiality? I, and think it's, I think it's good to be... I think collegiality is, is really good. I think giving people credit is awesome, even when they beat you. I think you should always deserve credit if this was something that would not have broken, if not but for your reporting, ideally. I also think it's really good to be competitive and to be really frustrated if range beats you to the punch, you know, because that's something I, that was one of, some of my best times covering City Hall was when I was competing against Nick DeShay, a former reporter, yeah. who was, you know, stellar. And I think we've all had situations where we give credit to somebody or link to somebody and then it gets removed in editing for one reason or another, you know, I don't think local reporters are opposed to giving shout outs and credit. Here's the, the thing that, here's yeah. the thing that bugs me. And well, yeah, I, there me. actually were, a couple, and I actually feel like there's, this is still kind of a, a plague in, in television journalism. And maybe it's because there's more opportunity to move up, you know, Spokane's a stop in the, along the yeah. way. And again, young reporter, and I'm a baby and I'm an egotist, and I'll just freely admit to all those things before I do this. I'm not going to say who it was because it's really more about the structure than about any individual person. But like three days after we're done talking about all this stuff, some person's like, I'm reporting on this right now, and here's what I'm finding out. And basically just like lifts from your New York Times story, my, and it's like it was like her reporting, imagining that maybe that's going to end up on her resume at some point. I don't know what. So let's think about to Shea in Poland as like a counterexample of I'm a reporter, I'm going to pretend that no other story has been written about this and I'm the only person that's breaking it. One, it's like self-centered and and wrong. But two, like you and I, I think, because we had similar uh, experiences growing up in a specific kind of church, really gravitated to the religious part of the the Shea story in Poland. And I maybe went a little deeper on certain things and you went deeper on other things. Eli's actually in country. And then the the Seattle Times story to my chagrin had like most of the basic facts. They had like not only basic facts, but some incredible like local quotes from people. Right, right, right. And so like the benefit to me though is of like giving credit goes, there's a news value for the consumer beyond just the collegiality aspect of it, whether you're uh, you're Twitter pilled like we are or not and saw the conversations we were having on Twitter in real time back and forth talking about the story. It is to the benefit of everybody if people, if people read all four of those stories. Yeah. It's better. I don't remember if I linked to range. I definitely linked to the Seattle times. And sometimes if the story has been broken by somebody else and the story that that comes out is something I already, already kind of had the information for, I probably won't, I don't feel the need, but I think it can be, it can be useful when something's already come out because then you can say, okay, I'm going to focus on this other angle, the other piece of it, as opposed to re-reporting it. I also think that the worst case scenario is that we really get into aggregation. Everyone reporting something four times to me is so much better than 
people running some story where we just they just they don't do any original reporting, and the raw story model where they just like take the most sensational detail and kind right. of like rewrite uh, like a couple paragraphs about that and then link to your story and then put it out under this national clickbaity headline. Right. I really hate that. And so like I I like that we have the pride to really dig into the stories ourselves. Um, I also think, you know, I try to be generous on Twitter frequently. A lot of times it's just about our egos and desperation for validation as reporters that is, <laughs> that is real. And like, as a, and we get paid in like fulfillment and validation and not very much in money in a lot of cases. Like this oh, is, yeah. you know, you know, you're this artist who's like, oh, I think this is kind of cool. And everyone else is like, you know, buying all these houses and like they're having, you know, so it's like you're, you know, you kind of like, it's, it's a really like, it's a job that's really hard to do if you have kids, for example. Oh yeah. You know? Well, and I also think yeah. that like, it wasn't purely generosity that I linked to your New York Times piece and my Buster piece because I wanted, I was like, I, that piece is already been done. So if you don't, if you aren't caught up yet, go read that and then come yeah. back to my thing. Which can I don't want really, to really waste good. a bunch yeah. of time mm-hmm. trying to replicate an event I wasn't at. Yeah. And so this is a good, and this is the thing I would like to, one of the advantages of the blogs and one of the challenges is that you want your stories ideally to like, especially print product, but also like blogs. I think the philosophy of most journalists, you want it all stand on their own, you know, so they could all read it and not read anyone else. But like we would save a lot of time if the busters were involved in like look check out this range piece for this piece aspect of the story. I love reporting, but like writing takes me a really long time. I am like uh, surprisingly like my ADD has not made it any easier. Yeah, and so like so I'm I'm a slow writer. That's one of my biggest weaknesses. It could save me a lot of time if I'm like these three sections I could link to you know the Washington Post, the Seattle Times, and that kind of thing. So I, I think that it can be good. I think you still want to kind of give the reader like a way to get caught up, but it can be great to like say. For more coverage, check out the Spokes Reviews. I think that'd be great. And readers like that too. It's like when it's like when Chris Kringle, like in America on 44th Street, like sends people elsewhere when they don't have the toys at <laughs> Macy's, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the way my ADD manifests, I'm actually a pretty speedy writer when I'm getting to the meat of it. And it's yeah. actually the agonizing part is like, oh my God, I think I actually have to spend a bunch of time explaining stuff that's already well known to me or yeah, it's already is, in the bloodstream. Which by the way, is really, really hard in this world. And of course, it's not shy. It's like this very kind of insular world to like readers. You need to sort of explain and re- remind them they don't know about all this kind of stuff yeah, already. Yeah, yeah. And then I could over contextualize being like, oh, there's actually this this kind of funny irony that, you know, and and actually in the 1930s, there was a group called that opposed the fascists called the, you know, and so like it's, it's a challenge. But I think there are also times where there's going to be disagreements. Um, and I think that's good, too. Like, I think oh, yeah. it's good to take another angle. I'll give you a sort of example. I have a story coming out about uh, Natasha Hill and Anne-Marie Danimus, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the Democrats running for uh, Catherine Morris Rogers. Right. Catherine Morris Rogers. The Morris two Rogers. Democrats yeah. running against, yeah, Catherine yeah. Morris Rogers. And so my story is, a lot of it is about uh, Nadasha Hill's Black Lives Matter speech, where she talks about wanting to defund the police and like suggesting that police are a violent gang and that kind of thing. Because this has been this kind of thing that's been hanging over Democrats' head. And Anne-Marie Danimus reacting to that and also them explaining that and to their credit, they're both really diving, you know, they're not afraid to talk about these, these controversial issues. The Spokes and Review piece didn't mention that at all, right? But that's like good because you read both pieces and there's a bunch of things the Spokes and Review went into that I didn't get into. You're going to be more educated. So that can be really good. So I, I like that we can, usually the spokesman comes out with a story. Usually we're like, okay, we're not going to write that story unless we have another angle. Because we only have three news writers. Some of the times we're on vacation or we're working on something else. 
Yeah. Well, that is kind of the point. And I guess I wonder if like a, a sort of a shift, and I think this is a vibe shift that's already happening with younger journalists. Like it's just much more collegial and less competitive. And I, and I take your point where it's like, Externally, it's a lot more internally, like journalists are like destroying each other in some ways. And so it's, <laughs> maybe you know, just themselves. Fun. It does seem like that would be a, a vibe shift that could get us to that place a little more quickly. Yeah. Whereas like, okay, it sucks that I got scooped about X, but nobody's talked about why yet. So why don't I just pivot and write the story about yeah. why? When I wrote my piece about Larry Haskell's wife saying a bunch of white supremacist stuff on Gab, I didn't have really time to really dig into all the debate around systemic racism in the prosecutor's office. And then you ended up doing that. So that to me, it felt like a perfect model for we're not coordinating in the sense of I'm not saying, hey, Luke, you know, do that, which I, sometimes I would be kind of uncomfortable with because you're more activisty than we are. But it was a great example of like how we can serve the reader. And I think that's the, that's ideally part of the way to do it. Um, but it's also recognizing that like a lot of readers read you know, the stories in print. A lot of people aren't extremely online. They're not on Twitter. They're not, you know, so sometimes we have this, this world that we're in that everyone knows this stuff and we're all kind of all, you know, no, I think, I think it's good. Although there's, although there's sometimes there's stories that we just decide not to cover because it's like, I mean, sometimes the spokesman interview will like put a story like this is, they did a really good job. Like nothing oh, more to add. Nothing more to add. You know? Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. Daniel, man, thanks for this. This was a really, definitely going to be a two-parter. Yeah. Sorry. I could go like a million more. Oh, no. yeah. well, and we so know that I can. I mean, yeah. well, I really appreciate, I really appreciate it. I'm really honored that you actually, uh, yeah, hopefully it's out. the, it's the first of, uh, first of many. Yeah. And I love talking about this stuff, obviously. And it's like, there's so many things that are, that are there and kind of, it's a really fascinating world. Um, and I think there's a lot of good people in North Idaho as well, figuring out different ways. Sometimes they're making stands against bad people. Sometimes they're just kind of live their life in different ways. And it's a really great place. And I'm really glad that, you know, I'm still reporting here. To some, yeah. Know. Yeah. All right, man. Thanks. Thanks. That's it for us. Thanks again to Daniel for coming on. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you like what we're up to here at Range, we are now a newsroom of three whole ass people, which is amazing. And the support of our members is how we're going to make that little family sustainable and eventually how we hope to grow even more. Most of those positions are grant funded at the moment, and we have a little bit of runway on that. But if you've noticed how we've picked things up in the last month or two, we're publishing more than ever, doing more original reporting than ever. I just got a note that it's going to take more people becoming members for us to be able to sustain that pace. And again, the intention is to keep growing. So it's going to take everyone who has an idea and an interest in building a better Inland Northwest to pitch in however they can. If you can spare the 10 bucks a month, that's amazing. Thank you. Go to rangemedia.co and click the subscribe button. If you can't, please share us with your friends, your family, and anyone else you think might appreciate what we're up to. Again, it still feels like we're in the sprint stages or we're in the first leg of the relay. We've built a team that can get us sort of past the first leg of where we want to get to. But we also have to be thinking about the fourth leg. We have to be thinking about longevity and sustainability. And the sooner we can start doing that now, the further that grant money is going to stretch, the less we rely on grants, the longer those grants can last. And it might even allow us to proactively redistribute some of that money toward new hires or new products. So yeah, that's it. If you like range, you like what we're up to, you want to keep it this good, become a member if you can and tell your friends no matter what. All right. That was a hard enough sell for this week. Back next time with another episode of Range of Care. Joining us again is instant fan favorite Inga Laurent to talk more about restorative justice in the criminal legal system and maybe in our own lives and maybe in our society and starting to think through what a different framework for healing might look like community repair, self-repair, etc. So look forward to that. 
And in the meantime, have a great week, everyone. Bye.